Hey everybody, before we get into the episode, uh, just to remind you about all the Rad Pride stuff that we have going on this month. First reminder, don't forget to listen to our episode about trans wizard Harriet Porber and the theater of love, and then write to us with any thoughts or questions that you have for Chuck Tingle by June 16th. It doesn't have to be about theater of love. It can be about the first Harriet Porber book or about anything that you want to talk to Chuck Tingle about generally. So you can also go back and listen to our previous interview with him in our episode on the first Harriet Porber book to get ideas for things you might want to talk to Chuck about. But yeah, you should do that. And then you should email us at thegaylyprofit at gmail.com or else by clicking contact us on our website, which is hashtag ruthless.com. Other things we have going on this month, we have a Patreon special. Anyone who joins our Patreon during the month of June will get a personalized gay and affirmation from Jesse. So you join our Patreon, you send us a little note telling us what you'd like to be affirmed about, and Jesse will record an affirmation for you, and you can listen to it to your heart's content whenever you need to hear good things. Uh, so that's cute. We're at patreon.com slash thegaylyprofit. We have some super rad pride merch available only this month. It's incredibly cool and you should check it out at hashtag ruthless.com slash shop. We have re-released our queer rated R Harry Potter themed activity book. It's super cool. If you missed it last year, you definitely need to go download it. It's a PDF. Again, hashtag ruthless.com slash shop. And don't forget to join us for our tea party on June 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Uh, We are just going to be on Instagram Live drinking tea and hanging out with all of you. So make sure you join us for that. We are at The Gaily Prophet on Instagram if you aren't following us already. I think that's all the things. So with no further ado, let's get into the episode. Gay people love puns. I'm dead. (laughs) We have to stop this podcast. This book causes Satanism. What is left for us to rant about? There is nothing straight about plum velvet. <laughs> you shouldn't have been drinking when I said that. <laughs> Monocles are impractical, but hot. I don't for a second believe that she is a straight person. I mean, I'm definitely here for bisexual Minerva McGonagall. Let's talk about <laughs> Harry Potter. Hello, and welcome to The Gaily Prophet, a podcast where we deep dive into special topics from the Harry Potter series because it's Pride Month and we want to. I am America's favorite Griffin dandy, Lark Malachi Gray. And I am Griffin Dyke Extraordinaire, Jesse Blount. And we have some special guests for this here episode. Heck yeah. Today we're going to be talking about Asian representation in Harry Potter with two wonderful guests, Eugenia Hu and Kieran Nigam. So friend of the pod, y'all remember Eugenia, is from the Woke Doctor Who podcast and the forthcoming still unnamed more general topic second podcast by the same people, uh, which I'm very excited about. (laughs) I didn't even know it was happening. That is very exciting. She is Chinese American by way of Hong Kong and Taiwan and grew up in the D.C. area. You can find her on Twitter at either at WokeDoctorWho or her personal account at RoyalGeekG, but be forewarned, she's very liberal with the block button on that one. Uh, Kieran is a social justice facilitator, educator, consultant, and Virgo magician dedicated to strengthening the organizations that make up movements for social and economic justice, 
so they can be more effective and joyful in their work. She works as a capacity builder, making it easier for groups to work through hard stuff to transform to align their values and structure and practice to vision liberated futures and to make plans to get there. She also moonlights as a functional nutrition consultant specializing in people with hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Hello. I also realized for this podcast, I should also share that I am mixed race and South Asian and white mixed which is relevant to who I'm going to be talking about in the Harry Potter series. Yes, that is actually the first thing that I'm going to ask both of you to talk about. Uh, what I very awkwardly call in the the information that I send you, your quote-unquote qualifications, <laughs> by which I mean, why is this important to you and why are you passionate about talking about it? And I can't think of a better word for that, but I am taking suggestions <laughs> if anyone has them. <laughs> Um, and if just say who you are before you start so that listeners can know whose voice is whose. So my name is Kieran. And okay, why am I qualified? Well, um, <laughs> part of how Lark pitched this to me that sold me is you said you, something like you read Harry Potter, you liked it. And then you told me at some point you'd stopped engaging with it because and I was decentering whiteness in my life. Um, and so I grew up. Um, my parents owned an educational toy store. Fun fact, I started working there at I 13. Know I know, it was a joy to get to work there throughout all junior high and high school, which means I was working there when Harry Potter came out. So I was an early adopter because when the first book came out, it came out to our store and I read it from there. And for context, I'm seven years older than Harry. So it was like, I was like reading kids' books as a high schooler. Mm-hmm. And I loved them. I fell in love with the world as a child. I was someone who really loved reading long series fantasy and fiction and getting immersed in other worlds. Um, but at some point in my life, it just stopped speaking to me. In fact, in getting ready for today, I had to research Padma and Parvati because there's so little about them that I couldn't remember anything about their characters except for that they were there. Like, I don't remember seeing myself in those characters or in any way connecting with them. And upon my researching, I was like, oh, that's because there was little to connect with. Mm -hmm. And I just got tired of reading books, especially these books about a somewhat inept young white boy who's propped up by all the people around him. Um, and so that's my qualifications in some ways. I think other things I, um, am an anti-oppression educator, political educator, and have been leading workshops on, white supremacy for the last 17 years. Um, so uh, don't actually love talking about race and white supremacy, but I'm willing to do so. And I'm very practiced at it. It was fun to apply that lens here. Awesome. Yeah. So um, as Lark mentioned, I'm on the Woke Doctor Who po podcast, and that is a podcast where an Asian lady in, from DC and a black lady from Baltimore discuss race and representation in Doctor Who and We've definitely branched out to all other fandoms that we enjoy. So we, one of our big fandoms is definitely Harry Potter. And for me, I actually came very late to Harry Potter. I think in official time, I, I hear, and I think you mentioned being your age in relation to Harry. And I, I think I'm one year younger than him. Um, so I think he was born in 80 and I was born in 81. And so I definitely 
was of the age when they came out where I was like, that's kids books. I'm not reading that. And then eventually I sort of circled back to it. And I think I read all of the books when I was in college and I'd completely forgotten that there was an Asian character at all, an East Asian character. It wasn't until Katie Leung was cast that I actually realized, oh, right, yeah, there was an Asian character in this in this movie. And I remember, um, this is something I wanted to mention today too, the racist vitriol she received upon being cast, which was a lot. And she actually recently has come out to talk about it. So yeah, for me, um, you know, this is definitely the thing I do for fun. And so I usually have a lot of resources to discuss representation and white supremacy and stuff like that during during the fun times. But yeah, like it is lately becoming a lot, um, especially with this latest spate of um, anti-Asian hate. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think actually both of you really nicely covered sort of where we wanted to start, which is like your relationships to the characters and how that affected your reading of the book when you were first reading them. I do want to make space if either of you want to say more about that before we get into other questions, though. I think as a child, or not a child, but as a teen reading Harry Potter, I definitely related with Hermione a lot and deeply connected with her, was a little Hermione myself in many ways. Um, And yeah, that's shifted and changed over time. But like I said, didn't feel any connection or relation to the South Asian characters who are, you know, very, have very small parts. And if I think about what I thought about them then, it was kind of like, oh yeah, South Asian people exist in the world. Therefore, there are South Asian people in this book. And that was probably the end of it as um, a youth in my teens when I was reading it. Yeah, when I was a kid, um, or when I was reading this in college, I didn't really connect with anyone in the books. Um, I think I definitely enjoyed imagining myself in them as as the you know as another East Asian character <laughs> or something like that, rather than actually connecting to any of the characters. I think I went through a, a short phase my angry Asian phase where um, I connected a little bit with Ron because he was just always ready to fight anyone, which I was pretty (laughs) cool with. Um, So, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. And like I said, like, you know, Cho really was kind of just a blip on my radar. Like I was like, well, it's cool that she's a Ravenclaw like me and she's good at Quidditch and they say she's very pretty and cool. That was kind of it. That was the the entirety of her description, except later on she cried a lot and dated people. So it's just like, okay. Eugenia, I'm so glad you clarified how your angry Asian fates led you to identify with Ron. That yeah. really initially took me by surprise. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> he really, he was so ready to fight everyone. And I was like, yes, I am too. <laughs> Oh, that's actually maybe I'm going to bring that as one of my like trying to read Ron more generously attempts mm-hmm. to my my readings of these books, because that is actually like can be a good quality. Yeah. <laughs> so we meet Parvati in book one, but we don't really know her very well. And then sort of all of these characters become as meaningful as they're going to become around the Yule Ball. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's 
real weird the way that it happens we have cho who like seems to be here just to like create tension between harry and cedric that's like her primary function and then we have parvati and padma who harry and ron ask them just like because they they ask because they they they're out of people apparently and then these two who then are referred to as the best looking girls in school it's like but they they didn't have dates either, right? And then they go to the ball and Harry and Ron are jerks because they're jealous about Cho and Hermione. And then they get whisked off by boys from Bobaton. And then we kind of never see them again, right? Which is not so much a question as like as like a prompt, right? That's a thing. What is <laughs> <laughs> So like I said, I had to research this because I was like, what happens to them? I don't remember. Um, but now I'm so fresh and I'm riled up. But yeah, so some things that, that like come up for me in the ways that they show up in book four, in some ways it feels like almost boringly commonplace and predictable. A white woman writer wrote women of color as props to basically be foils for the development of white female character leads. Like they aren't if you look at them from a like what role do they play in the books they're not there as their own characters they're really only there in the Yulba scene like to prop up the further development of Hermione as a character mm-hmm. and i think the one thing that's complex and a little bit unusual about this is they're also propping up the development of Cho an asian woman gasp instead of a white woman however Cho serves as this foil to like lead you into Ginny and and to show how Ginny's more interesting, uh, more strong because she doesn't cry all the time, etc. So it's just like a chain of women of color propping up the development of Ginny as a white woman character. So yeah, unsurprising, predictable, boring with this little twist of there's two women of color that prop up the, the white leads. And of course, they're the most beautiful women at the school. Like, I'm biased, but yeah. they are beautiful i mean look at how horribly they had to dress them in the movies so that they didn't outshine hermione like what south self-respecting or not south asian person would wear those horrific outfits to that ball and they're you know they have no character development like they don't if you took them and renamed them something else they could be any other ethnicity there's nothing otherwise that develops them uniquely and you know and i rewatched some scenes of the movies and was this isn't the books but but you know jk i'm assuming signs off on things in the movies like they speak in unison multiple times they say hi harry or something like that in unison so they don't even they're not even portrayed as as an in individuals at all even with lines in the movie and then they go to this ball dressed in um, mirrored matching clothing. Like they're really there as a unit to develop the white female leads. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it shows, I think, in the way that J.K. Rowling has used them, it shows that there's no consequences for using women of color to develop your, you know, the white characters in a story in the ways that the Harry and Ron treat them like that unspokenly shows that there's no consequences for using a woman of color when it's convenient for a white man. Like 
they're being used it's explicit i don't think and i could be wrong correct me if i am but i don't think ron even asks padma he goes with padma yeah yeah he doesn't harry asks harry asks padma will you go with ron like no, Harry asks Parvati if she will ask her oh, sister so he to go with Ron. The woman of color do the work for him. Yeah, that's yep. more. That's even more on on brand. So yeah, I mean that's that's like what that says to me. They're disposable as characters. They're there to develop Hermione and they're there to develop Cho and then and Ginny and that's really the role they play in the series. And I think I don't know what was in J.K. Rowling's mind, but I think there was some assumption of like okay, this is the UK, we should make sure there's a South Asian character. She put two, but they're related to each other and, <laughs> and like, go around the book together, um, speaking, you know, most of the time, like, as this unit. Those are some of my initial thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, that Yule Ball scene is really, really loaded. Um, it's it's interesting. So <laughs> I went through and pretty ashamed of this, of a brief phase during the pandemic where I was watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I don't know which one is which. Oh, my God. I also watched The Bachelor this, <laughs> this year. Awful. It was very bad. Awful. It was so terrible. They're so <laughs> bad. <laughs> Sorry. For listeners, it was the the first Black Bachelor that was season that you watched. Yeah, so I watched um, the the uh, the the season, the Bachelorette, the season before that that had some sort of drama where the one the initial one picked someone the very first day and was like obsessed with him, and then they switched the Bachelorette to a black woman, which. It was really kind of like, huh, there's a lot, there's a lot in here. And then I started to watch the the first back Black Bachelor and was like, this is awful. I can't watch this. This is terrible. But um, anyway, yeah, it was oh so bad. But one of the things I started thinking about a lot as I was going through <laughs> the depths of, you know, pandemic depravity and The Bachelor was um, this concept of white choice, you know, um, how and it, this is so prevalent in the Asian community where, you know, if if we're told that if we can't marry someone of our own ethnicity, that at least marry a white person. That's we're all told that. And mm -hmm. so um, like so much of our identities as you know, Asian as as um, women of color is tied into are we attractive to white men? You know, and I think the reverse would be for, you know, men of like people, men of color. That's weird. Why does that sound so weird? Anyways, you know, especially East Asian men, you see a lot of issues in our society around like emasculation of Asian men of I'd say East and South Asian men. And so the the concept of white choice, like always sort of bypasses them. And so that whole Yule Ball scene, I ended up thinking about, are there any like, you know, I guess Dean is the one person of color that is a male character that goes to the Yule Ball with any does he go to the Yule Ball? I don't remember. Yeah, I don't think they even mentioned it because Neville went with Ginny. In in right. the books, I don't remember if he if he went with anyone. I don't, and I don't remember if he's in that scene in the movies either. Yeah, so. I don't. I yeah, I don't remember at all. And so it's basically not covered, like the idea of any person of color choosing someone. So all mm -hmm. of these people of color were asked by a white person, and that <laughs> it's 
you know, one of the reasons why I had to stop watching The Bachelor is I was like, this feels like just propping up white supremacy over and over mm -hmm. again because it centers itself around what's appealing to white people as viewers and as contestants on the show. And so, you know, rarely, rarely, if ever, is a person of color chosen as the the person that the the main uh contestant go like ends up with. I think it has happened once in what, a 20 year history? Um, and like that had so much drama wrapped up in it. And that was in fact the last season of The Bachelorette. And so it's really sad to me how even in this, you know, delightful little children's book, we see this overarching concept of white choice just play out itself, you know, as we're discussing little like teens and preteens, like it just, mm -hmm. what gives? Like, can we ever choose the people we want to be with? And can we have that be the story? And can our attractiveness to um, white people not be what we center ourselves around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and furthermore, from a story perspective, it just feels unrealistic. Like you're telling me that we're going to a school where there's seven kids of color, more or less. Right. And they never talk to each other. I'm like, that's feels except for Parvati and Padma who are attached at the waist. They're not in the books though. They're That's not even right. in the same house. Right. 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 They're broken up into Ravenclaw and yeah. Gryffindor. I think Parvati, if we read Lavender is black, which is like unclear about whether she is in the book canonically. Right. It's, or not, uh, no, but... In the movie they make her black initially and then that when she gets to book six where she has a like romance with Ron, she's cast she's she... recast with a white actress, right. which is bullshit. Unbelievable. Well, believable. Yeah, <laughs> very believable, very, uh, very, very bullshit. Uh, in the book, I think we, well, her race isn't ever stated, so. Okay. Right. So we read her as black, but it's not, it's not canon, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. But it does just seem unrealistic, right? That, that these characters wouldn't have developed relationships with each other. Right. Exactly. It also speaks to, like, the power of white supremacy to determine whose story is worth mm -hmm. telling. Mm -hmm. Like who is worth being a character to be to be explored, to have a background, to have a personality, to have motivations, all of those things. Right. I mean, and also the fact that that the two hottest girls in school didn't get asked to the ball. Like where, ridiculous. Which is like so right, just outlandishly absurd. Like, the two women that are immediately snatched up by the beautiful French boys, right? Because apparently everyone from Bobaton is just <laughs> stunningly gorgeous. And they are like those two. But everyone at Hogwarts was like, no. See, it just feels to me um, like uh, an older white woman compliment. Like, you know, the first thing that they say about a woman of color will be like, and, and she's so, she's so pretty. You know, she's just so pretty. And that's... Like I've, I always read the assessment of Padma and Parvati like that. Like, oh, and they're and they're so pretty, you know, with their with their hair and, you know, like it's the thing that older white women, i.e., J.K. Rowling, say when they can't think of anything else to to say to you. Right. Well, there's often like underlying pretty or sometimes explicitly as oh, they're so exotic. Yeah, so mm -hmm. exotic. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I think doesn't track about them being described as beautiful and not having dates is often women of color are exotic and the people you want to take to your school ball, but you would never take home to your parents. 
Yeah. And so what's unrealistic about this is there's no there's no taking home to the parents. It really was just the school ball. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, maybe maybe would have been more realistic that they were swiped up. Yeah, I mean, I think the only the only woman of color that is taken home to anyone's parents would be um, what is it, Angelina, right? right? Mm-hmm. Who ends up marrying George, yes. yeah. right? So yeah, so yeah, like it, it's it's really really sad, like how much the things that we see and recognize in our everyday lives, the tiny little microaggressions, are in this mm-hmm. book and teaching children and young people. Yeah. These are lessons. I feel like in a lot of ways, just because I feel like the fact there's like the amount of people of color in these in these series, you can literally count on both hands and not and that's it. It's just definitely part of like whatever sort of like neoliberal bullshit JKR is on or whatever it's called like in the UK where it's like, well, I have to have some diversity. So here is your diversity, Mm -hmm. everyone. And it's like, I would have maybe even preferred there to have not even had this diversity because it's so just terrible and like tokenized it's like you maybe could have just not even done that <laughs> mm-hmm. in some ways yeah yeah if if nobody but if nobody's race was described everyone would assume they were all white right it does bring about the question though is she's definitely using all of these characters in a tokenizing way without you know developing any any meaningful character development for them is that better or worse than leaving people out entirely right and i think it get that gets more tricky and or i think that's a more to me a question i like to be in more when it's about real people um it's i haven't explored that in terms of what is that what does that teach to young people and i mean i think it teaches if I think about what did I learn there, it's like, okay, you are in the magical world, but you're not important mm. and your story doesn't matter and you're not going to interact in a meaningful way with that world or be interacted with. Right. Yeah. And I think we see this a lot, especially in sci-fi and fantasy fandoms where many of us, especially women of color, find ourselves getting shoved out of that space by, you know, white males. So, um, you know, one of the things that we uh, definitely were very liberal with the block button very early on when we started the Woke Doctor Who podcast was anyone who was trying to to edge us out of the space with uh, facts or like, you know, how much do you remember these episodes? Um, you know, what in in, you know, Tom Baker's run in 1970, whatever, like what happened here? And if you don't know this, you're not a true fan, all of this kind of stuff, this sort of true fan geek keeping. So um, yeah, like, so it leads for a lot of us now that the internet exists to really try to carve out our own spaces. And that's the only thing that we've been able to do. And like, as much as we do so, the second we're around these fandoms, like, you know, if you go to a con, which I, I guess we'll never go to conventions ever again, probably. <laughs> Who knows? But, you know, you find yourself like, oh, if you're a Ravenclaw, you must be Cho. And if you're not Cho, then, like, you can't be anyone else in this space. You you sort of end up put, getting yourself put in a box um, when there is no space for you, however limited that space is created for. Like, you know, we have a tiny little East Asian box that Cho fits in in Harry Potter and 
that's it. So if you are an East Asian fan, you must be a Ravenclaw. <laughs> and you, if you're cosplaying, you must dress as her. Period. <laughs> so yeah. There's something interesting there about how what I'm hearing from you is like your race is the most important or how I read your race, whoever's saying that to you, is the most mm -hmm. important piece about who you should identify when, with this within this world rather than your personality, your characteristics, yeah, who you connect with. And at the same time, within this world, these characters' races aren't that important at all. Like they're not brought in or or elaborated upon. So it's, that's just an interesting tension that I'm yeah, marinating on from what you shared. Yeah. Yeah. I think this would dovetail nicely into maybe talking a little about about the ways in which JKR is signaling to us as readers with the naming and descriptions of all of her POC characters, but especially with the uh, Tell Twins and show and just sort of like just I don't know. You're, you got y'all's y'all's thoughts about this, so <laughs> their names and how they're described. Yeah, uh, Eugenia, do you want to go first? Cho, there's a lot to yeah, say about sure. Cho. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've mentioned this on every single um, either Harry Potter episode that we've had on our our podcast, or um, any like I think the the time that Toya and I were on. Um, this podcast as well I mentioned this but you know many all actually I'll say all of us Asian Americans grow up with at least someone in our like you know some stranger out in public walking up and either like just yelling it in our faces or like whispering it next to us but ching chang chong all the time literally all of us have experienced this so to have this absolutely non-existent name of Cho Chang um, that sounds so much like someone saying Ching Chang Chong instantly, instantly made me uncomfortable when I was reading the books and seeing it in the movies like this. She she really she could not have sunk lower <laughs> with her attempt at at naming this character. And, you know, like I mentioned before, nothing else about her is described. Like, they just say that she's really pretty. She's good at Quidditch. She must be very smart because she's in Ravenclaw. And the all of that just so delightfully ties into that model, model minority motif that it like I'm just like, couldn't she have been a Hufflepuff that was just like, hey, let me eat all the food in the kitchen. Like, how about that? <laughs> that would have been so much better to try to not give what was stereotypical to this character. So yeah, I, I could not. And this was one of the reasons why I didn't relate to this character at all, because it was just like, yes, although I am also a Ravenclaw, I'm also East Asian and I played sports growing up. And so clearly, like I could have been this character in quotes. I just refused. I completely pushed back at any sort of connection that I might have with this character because it was just so stereotypical. So yeah <laughs> I, you know can i share just a little bit different perspectives on Cho, like pieces that i appreciate about her character is i think she's mm -hmm. really fierce and fearless yeah. and loyal and strong and in many ways counter to at least what east asian stereotypes are in the u.s like she yeah. stands up for her values she stands up for her friends 
unlike in the movies, she stands strong. You know, she doesn't. She is not the person who snitches out yeah. the um, DA, which may, I, it's so infuriating, that shift. But I think she's got a lot of like power and, and integrity as a character in those ways that I'd really appreciate. Yeah. And I think as I've spent longer with these characters, like this character, like I've definitely come to appreciate her more. But that it's so hard to get over that initial yeah. just like punch of yeah. like, OK, everything that you're afraid is true about yourself mm -hmm. and all the ways that that people that don't look like you treat you. It's right yeah. here in this book, you know. And so, yes, like Cho that like I definitely have this like vast fantasy life of what Cho actually was like outside of you know this unreliable narrator Harry's description of her and so yeah like she's definitely she's become a character that I've appreciated more and more over time but it's really funny I've been reading this book by um what is her name Kathy Park Hong, I think is her name. This book is called Minor Feelings. And one of the things that she addresses is the self-hate that many of us Asian Americans um, sort of grow into, you know, of like, you know, if if there's only space for one of us, let it be me and anyone who is not like, you know, not assimilating enough or not anything enough like, let me try to push them out. You know, so many of us grow up with this tendency of self-hate, especially Asian Americans. And like, you know, it's funny that my reaction to Cho initially was almost sort of like that of like, well, she's a lot like me, but she's not like me because I'm like me. So there's no space for her, especially with that light description. It was too easy for me to just yeah. do that. Yeah, I really feel that. I feel like that rings true for South Asian communities, too. And we come like we immigrate to the U.S. with like uh, a millennial history of casteism, um, which means mm -hmm. upon entry into the U.S., the, the the caste system of white supremacy makes a lot of sense. It's um, like everything about um, the caste system within India sets us up to assimilate into the logics of white supremacy because we're already often like trained into a logic of supremacy. And then there's a lot of pressure to assimilate always towards whiteness, right? Like in the US, we have this white black binary, which in and of itself is really worthy of being explored given that this is a settler colonial state and indigeneity isn't within that like that binary of how race is talked about in the u.s um, that's luckily changing with the way that our movements are building strength but then you know south asians we immigrate in and it's like always assimilate towards whiteness and um, there's a lot of violence among each other to support that at times what are you you know you need to be going in this direction only I feel like in terms of like how Parvati and Padma are named, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, those are names. <laughs> like Parvati's a name, Padma's a name, Patil's a name. That's great. They're not described that much. It's, you know, like you said, Eugenia, they're described as being pretty. Um, I think one thing about Parvati is she's later, and I don't think it's in book four, but later, you know, she's talked about as being really into divination and really into Professor Trelawney and that in a negative or derisive manner because yep. divination is fluff. Um, and there's some like, I think there's some real losses there. 
Like, I think, first of all, again, what's the literary tool of that? That's setting Hermione up as someone who is uh, clear-headed, rational, smart, logical, level-headed, isn't going to be taken away by this divination nonsense. Uh, Also, not like other girls. I want to put in finger quotation marks where it's like, oh, you like gossiping and like divinations and you're probably real femme unlike Hermione and Ginny who are not like other girls. And it's yeah, right. Parvati mm-hmm. and Lavender are literally criticized for getting excited about a baby unicorn which is like how could you not? Something is deeply wrong with yeah. you if you're not stoked about a baby unicorn. How dare you describe that? Like, it's a bad thing to do. <laughs> right. I mean, the amount of patriarchy and misogyny in that is just overwhelming, right? Like, the, yeah. the way that Hermione is played, portrayed so favorably because she's not portrayed femme. Right. Yeah. And and she's her best friends are boys, and she can be one of the boys um, and roll with them and show them up left and right. So it's really just like a huge amount of misogyny there. But I think the other thing that we, where that's a huge loss to me is what's involved in divination, like astrology, palm reading. Those are things that are have long, long histories on the South Asian continent. And I think it's a loss to not have explored the connection there to just demean that. That's meaningful. Like that's meaningful to lots of people. My um my dad's older brother was a super I say was because he's he's an ancestor now, um super successful astrologer and palm reader. And every time we would go back to visit my family, they would talk about my chart. I would get my palm read. It was infuriating because they would speak in Hindi, which I didn't understand because my dad wanted me to assimilate towards whiteness, so he didn't he didn't want me to have an accent. He didn't want me to be read as South Asian because he didn't want me to experience basically the racism he was experiencing and had experienced upon immigrating here. But they would like read my, my uncle would read my palm and say like five minutes of things in Hindi and then say like 30 seconds in English. And I'd be like, you are not telling me everything. This is unfair. And then for like the next two weeks, I'd be like, but dad, but what, what else did he say? But that's like, that's not just some small thing. Like that feels, that's meaningful to me as part of my, my culture. It's, it's important and to have that portrayed as fluff and not quote not real is painful like that that's really it's hurtful and also it's a total loss in terms of world development like of course the south asian character is interested in the like i mean there's something that could be really cool there in terms of developing like what's the history of south asian magical practice what different specialties might there be like I want to see that Harry Potter world. I have so many questions about it. I don't want J.K. Rowling to write it, frankly, but I no. want it to be there. I've never read any fan fiction. Maybe it is, and um, if any of you know, please send it my way. But thats I just think it's such a loss. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, Like, and I've mentioned this a few times before, at least in Star Wars and in Doctor Who, there's a really rich, expanded universe that is handed off to other authors than like George Lucas, as an example. And I've always wished that JK would just do that and let us write in this space. Cause like, you know, Cho, um, you know, Cho is not a last name that we like, at least not in that spelling and pronunciation or Chang, well Chang too, but um, you know, 
the names that she chose for Cho, Cho is more typically a last name in Korean, and Chang is something that exists in Chinese, but more often exists in Korean. And it's never clear, you know, it's funny, because I speak Chinese, I've always interpreted Cho as her last name, and like <laughs> initially, and it's probably not the case because they just call her Cho. Um, so I guess her last name is Chang, and so it's it's all messed up. But, you know, most likely she's Korean and we talk a lot on our podcast about the other wizarding schools, you know, and there's so much wrapped up in the fact that the one East Asian school for all of those countries is in Japan. When Japan has had this long history of, of oppressing and killing people from China, from Korea, from the Philippines, like it's, it's so messed up. But like, I want to know what her life outside of Hogwarts mm -hmm. is, you know, um, one of the things and I'm probably skipping ahead in, in the question. So apologies no. here. But like one of the things we I've started to see a lot of East Asian well, actually all Asian Americans really start to to embrace is this concept of being third culture you know in that yes you know we're we've constantly had this identity crisis of being too foreign for the US and too um, American for home even though we all still call it home mm -hmm. and so all of us grow up really like lonely you know for the most yeah. part because we don't know who to connect to because we're we're told from right and left that we're not enough for either of these groups and so this concept of third culture has really started to to gain speed i'm so excited about this because when we're here like i see another east asian face and i'm like friend we can be <laughs> you and i can connect you know even if she's korean or she, uh, he's japanese you know like we can connect because we are all this third culture that exists here that is not, you know, American and is not home. It's, you know, whatever American, Asian American. And so, um, you know, I definitely, Padma, Parvati, and Cho would have had that, right? Like, we would have, they would have all been in this space of like, okay, here's how I am here in Hogwarts. Here's how I am at home. And where am I? Who am I in all of this? You know? And so that's, those are the pieces I want to know about these characters. You know, like if we're limited to just the characters that JK has, has defined, I want to know about their actual lives, you know, of like, where do they connect and where, like, who are they specifically? Mm -hmm. And if there's ever any space for that in the future, like, I haven't seen as much um, fanfic as my podcast partner has. She's seen quite a bit about the, um, or at least sought out quite a bit about the um, African school Wagadu. Um, so I'll ask her, <laughs> see if she can send some of these um, like fanfic revolving around the other schools mm -hmm. our way. But yeah, you know, there's so there's so much tradition to be plumbed there. And it feels like such a cop out to just be like, and I guess there's some hand wavy schools over there and that probably do something I don't know. This feels obvious. Well, to me, it feels obvious that J.K. Rowling wasn't thinking about anybody outside of Europe, right. you know, because right. they came so late on in the, you know, the the like Quidditch World Cup just magically is all 
European countries. It's like, oh, because you actually just weren't thinking about the entire rest of the world. And that's actually, like, that's fine. Own that and take responsibility for it. That is actually, I think, the the way to go forward with integrity. And and then open it up. But yeah, like these, uh, that really resonates with me, Eugenia, the third culture piece. And I think these characters would also be reckoning with, like, what is my magical practice? Like, I'm here in a, a colonial magical school learning Latin-based magic. Um, I come from a whole, like, uh, ancestral tradition of magical practice that is going to be different. And where do I fit within this? And how do I, how do I navigate these different worlds and being uh, an immigrant or a child of immigrants here what what part of these magical practices speak to me where where am i strong maybe they're strong in magical practices that aren't part of the hogwarts curriculum do they like can i can i bring that into this school space which are the questions that i at least i've thought about a lot when i was in schools like how much of this other world do i bring into this colonial space um and i'm sure that that that's like complex and interesting and yeah ripe for some great storytelling mm-hmm. yeah i would love nothing more than to be like tell me about how what magic is like in other languages in a like mm-hmm. harry potter magical system framework because this idea yeah. that it's like going to hogwarts is some kind of like racial and ethnic equalizer is such bullshit and just so unrealistic that it's it's absurd it's just it's just absurd uh, yeah and like this is getting into like what would good representation look like but i'm like just thinking about those worlds like i first of all refuse to believe there's not a school in the entire south asian continent i don't believe it it's not believable i it's truly don't think that jk rowling has a sense of like how many people live places that aren't like tiny countries in <laughs> western europe it's like one school for all of the UK and then one for all of the like North America and one for all of Asia. I'm like, do you know how many people that is? <laughs> like I just don't think you have any concept. Like Absolutely. So many, so many people. That's it's I mean, if we're talking about South Asia and East Asia together, which I believe we are in her yeah. country. Like, yep. That's more than two sevenths of the world's population. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's one school for <laughs> all right. of Africa. It's like it's, one yeah. per continent, and then you can have one for France, one for the UK, and one for like Bulgaria. Right. Okay. And <laughs> we know that the schools in South Asia and in China, they've been around longer than the schools in Europe. Way right? Longer. They right. have a longer right. history of instruction. They have like, I want to know about those schools. Like, that's where I think that's what good representation looks like. That gets so yeah. exciting. Yeah. Like, yeah. bring them in to the Quidditch World Cup. I want, yes, please. Like, yeah, yeah. that would be awesome. And one of the things, one of the things that's been so interesting to me in reading Harry Potter, and this is the strangest thing for me to say because I'm an atheist, is how devoid, like, it is very Christian in a sense but you don't see any sort of overt expression of the religion involved in the magic. Mm -hmm. But when you go to East Asia, and I'd imagine in South Asia as well, magic and religion and spirituality are intertwined Mm -hmm. completely. And so like you wouldn't be able to sidestep that at all in any any Asian country at all, period. And so it's very interesting to think about what that looks like, you know, because I'm sure I would love to hear, and this is of course a like an attempt to put myself in these books, but what about 
uh, like Chinese atheist having to go to this Japanese magic school. Mm, like, right. what does that look like? How interesting would that be? That'd be so utterly fascinating. And there's so, this world could be so much richer if JK st just stopped writing it and just gave it to other yeah. people. I mean, yes. To write. Yeah. 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 We've, we definitely had some conversations about kind of the fake non-secularness of Hogwarts where it's like, mm -hmm. there is no God, but you guys are still celebrating like Yule and like Easter, but it's like called like Christmas and Easter and like these kind of Catholic Christian holidays. And it's like, well, that feels realistic to me though. That seems realistic. Like we're looking at like, this is being held in a place where the Roman empire used Christianity to colonize indigenous peoples of of Europe and one of their tools was to subsume those practices into the calendar right of Christianity it, it seems realistic like that 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 would then have affected the wizarding world it seems realistic that at the school they would only be celebrating those practices and those traditions that we wouldn't see anything of anyone else's practices um, in terms of holidays, because again, white supremacy determines whose story is worth being told, whose religion is worth being celebrated, whose practices are worth being passed on. So that all to me is totally realistic. What feels unrealistic is that race is not a thing in the wizarding world. Like JK Rowling is actually writing very clearly about how race is a thing in the wizarding right. world, how colonialism has impacted the wizarding world, how white supremacy has impacted the wizarding world. She's doing it very well. I don't think she does it intentionally. She does it realistically. She does it well, but then says like, oh, but we're not going to ex examine like how these South Asian characters got here, even though we know it has to be through colonialism. We're not to examine how these black characters got here, even though the likelihood of it having to do with the slave trade is very high. Um, and that's the part that's totally unrealistic and falls apart. And that's, it, that's because it wasn't intentional on her part that she wrote white supremacy into this world. That was just yeah. um, because it's so well integrated into her, um, like it is most people who grew up in white supremacist spaces. Right. Yeah. We do actually get yeah. a line where, a, is it, Pansy says something directly racist to yes. to or about Angelica. And it's yes. like, so it's not yeah. like even, which part of that could be, of course, the racism of JKR slipping through, which often happens. Yeah. But it's also like, yeah. that is a, a direct real world example that like this world isn't as, mm -hmm. it's all about yeah. pure bloods and, you know, muggleborns and uh, and like half bloods. It's like, oh no, so racism is still a part of this, of like the, like the magical world. Right, they have so, they have yeah. multiple supremacy logics happening at the same time, right? Yeah. And we see them like add, keep all the ones we have and add in right. this piece of Muggle versus Wizard. Like that's that's the only difference. They have an additional one, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, because um, the line you're talking about is when Pansy says that Angelina's hair looked like looked like worms, and let I do not know any black woman who has not had someone come at her hair. So yeah, like it's, you're right. Like these are all like we have on top of the, you know, the the story racism, we have the real racism on top of that. And it's, it's very interesting to me um, how often JK wants to divorce her wizarding world from the real world but then it still gets in anyways. Mm -hmm. You know, like I always think about the line in, and I know this is the movies, but um, in uh, 
uh, what is it? The creatures. Well, why am I blanking on what it's Terror called? Terrible creatures. No. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's the the movie. Why am I blanking on what the movie is Fantastic actually called? Beast. Fantastic Beasts, thank you. I'm like, care of magical creatures. You already have forgotten the title. That's probably for the best, I feel. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is for the best. But like, I always remember this throwaway line where Newt Scamander is talking to the muggle and he's he's like, oh, you know, you were in the war. I was in the war too. I was mainly working with dragons. Like, okay, so mm -hmm. World War One mm -hmm. somehow covered both wizarding world and the muggle world and you're gonna somehow say that no no no, everything's separate it's just completely different like no you can't say that you really cannot yeah and it's like i mean i think this is like a lesson for people everywhere that the problem isn't necessarily that she had so internalized white supremacy that she wrote it throughout her books or that she'd so internalized patriarchy that she wrote it throughout her books the problem is that she continues to distance herself from that rather than using that as a really important engagement space that's the problem that right. she's unable right. to release defensiveness to actually examine what does this mean for this this series what does this mean for these characters what does this mean as as i move forward in continuing to develop out this franchise that's the issue because it would be so refreshing and interesting for her to be like yeah you know you're right like, how can we how can we address this? What can we do about that? Mm -hmm. What might be an alternative story? Who wants to write a different piece of this world? That's the response that would be desired. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. saw an interview with Francesca Leah Black, who wrote the Weezy Bat books, where they were talking about the like, mm, someday maybe a Weezy Bat movie will get made. And she was like, I wrote this book in like 1989 and I didn't know about cultural appropriation, but like if I had, I never would have written all of the Weetsy wearing headdresses and like mm -hmm. fetishization of indigenous people into the books. And if we do make a movie, I'm not putting any of that in. And I was mm -hmm. like, that was one sentence. Yeah. To hey JK Rowling, you should read this. It was one sentence. This is this is doesn't have to be hard. You just take ownership and be like, I fucked up and like, I'm going to do it different as I move forward writing my, you know, creating my world or whatever. Yeah, I'm learning, you know. Right. Right. I feel a little bit like there was like a period maybe around whenever books six was being written that like people around JKR just stopped telling her no or giving her actually <laughs> good feedback, which I think reflects in the quality of book six and seven. But I think it's just continued and she has amassed just all of this money where I'm like, I don't think anyone around her is telling her, no, this is a bad idea. Or maybe you should educate yourself or reflect upon the things that you're doing. Um, along with, I'm sure, all the amassing like however millions upon millions of dollars just makes you less empathetic to the people around you. It's kind of like... I'm not saying she is yeah. past the point of, you know, return, but no, I am saying that. I think she is past <laughs> yeah. the point of no return where it's like, could, like, could she be convinced? I don't know. Right. I don't know. The thing that's interesting, though, is like, well, yeah, she has been presented with so many opportunities and allowed them to sail by um, at best. But what is interesting is she says that these books are an allegory for addressing racism in terms of the muggle, you know, like she 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 says she wrote them with with some values and to me that gives her an opportunity to say yeah i wrote these with some values and i've learned some things and 
I would change them now. That that's that's like so I guess maybe it's the part of me that believes in transformation. I don't think anyone's ever really passed the point, but she certainly has made choices that um, where she could have chosen to grow um, and and chosen to act with integrity and has not. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that line of, especially in fantasy fiction, like where the writer says, oh, yeah, this is an allegory for racism. And meanwhile, like, why don't you actually talk about racism? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, my husband, my husband's black and he um, we both when Lord of the Rings came out before we knew each other, we were both obsessed with it. And then we realized that in a movie that came so long after you know, when did the first movies come out? Like 2000 or something yeah. like that. How are there no black characters whatsoever? No black actors, no, like they're actors of color, but they're all playing the orcs, yeah. you know? And so like, how is this okay? Like in a movie that does address racism, because you know, you have Gimli and Legolas being really important, a really important friendship there that or not a movie but you know a work that addresses that racism how are you going to sit there and say oh but it's a fantasy world and it's a it's a medieval like fantasy we don't we people of color weren't in weren't there and it's just sort of like yeah but it's a fantasy you know like there weren't real wizards <laughs> and, then either right so. <laughs> right i mean yeah and it's so funny to me because like when we talk about these works of fantasy you know, it's hard to talk about anything without going back to Star Wars. And back in the 70s, Star Wars already had black characters in there and black actors in there. And how is it that 30 years later, you're like, no, 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 we don't need we don't need people of color in fantasy. Right. No, you do. There's precedent. You just didn't bother. Right. And so it's one of those things where, you know, I'm really sick and tired of seeing fantasy the written allegory of racism always being discussed and never real racism being discussed. And it's, I think that the art of writing good fantasy and sci-fi, not as someone who writes it, but as someone who reads it, is that you have to walk the line between creating a different world and making that world believable enough that your, your readers can enter it. And the reality is these all white spaces for myself and I think for lots of people of color are not believable enough because right. we don't mm -hmm. live in those worlds and and they can be believable for some white readers but often many of them also they're just not believable enough because we live in you know we we can't make that leap with with the author right right right, right. and like you said you know what you're talking about is layering racism on top of other racism right you're laying bigotry on top of other bigotry and that it's just unacceptable that that you have that you didn't realize what you've done to your characters you know when you actually put a character of color in your books and you're like well but they they deal with this kind of racism here this fantasy re racism i've made up on top of all the other microaggressions they're dealing with in their own lives and that's when you just want to be like, oh sweetie that's actually not racism or white supremacy that's another form right. of systemic power and violence that you've created yep it's yeah. different yeah and yeah. and it can coexist just like white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism coexist mm -hmm. yeah right. yeah i feel like the every single one of these interviews that we do like at like a core level boils down to is like jk rowling can not be trusted with an allegory 
like yeah. under any circumstances like she cannot she can't she just cannot be trusted with an allegory she just needs right. to stop i mean and i i think kind of to the point uh, a lot of white fantasy authors can't <laughs> right it's like right. Cool, you can imagine dragons and you can imagine all kinds of cool magical critters but you can't imagine more than a handful of people of color being in your world <laughs> Uh, oh. Um, Gina, you want to talk a little bit about the actress who played Cho in the movies and sort of the predictable bullshit that she had to go through? Well, and yes, and it almost goes back to the my top the thing I mentioned earlier about white choice. It's just really interesting how often, how many more times since Katie experienced this that we've seen other Asian actors experience the same thing. So, um, Kelly Marie Tran was very Comes immediately much someone, to mind. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. yeah, very, very much experienced it when she was in The Last Jedi. And The Last Jedi, of course, had so many, so much drama and so many detractors. And of course, it's pretty much my favorite Star Wars movie. But and she is such an important character to me because of who she is in this movie. Like she is one of the heroes that comes out of the movie. But because she is an Asian woman with completely non-Anglo appealing character, uh, like features, she dealt with so much racist vitriol that she ended up leaving like all of social media. And it was very interesting to see thereafter, um, I think uh, when Raya and the Last Dragon came out, when was it last year? And they had like a limited um, uh, red carpet event and she, came dressed in this gorgeous traditional Vietnamese outfit and like just completely slayed and it was just sort of like here this is me you know this is the person that you put all of your hatred into and then the same thing happened with Simu Liu who is Chinese um, he's Canadian and he's going to be playing Shang-Chi in uh, Marvel it's called Shang-Chi and the Golden Rings 10 Golden Rings I forget now but the 10 I'm rings. so sorry Ten rings, thank you. I'm so excited about this. But he, when he was cast, dealt with the exact same thing because he's Chinese and he looks Chinese. He has a wider nose. He has like very prominent jaw and cheekbones the way a lot of Chinese people do. And he dealt with so many people, both both in the US and in China, which is one of the largest movie markets, like, telling him how ugly he is which is ridiculous because he's so not ugly none of these people are ugly and so it's just been really interesting seeing the same the same bullshit repeating over and over and over again like you know it wasn't enough that this how old was katie when she got cast like 15 like like really the target of all of your hate because you don't think she's pretty enough to be um appealing enough to harry potter that you're heaping all of this on a 15 year old girl um that we are constantly seeing it over and over again and it all goes back to this concept of like to be accepted to be a person of color and to be accepted by white culture you have to look the way white people want you to look mm -hmm. and none of them did and that's why they dealt with all the bullshit. and like that is just unacceptable um and so i can't 
I can't think about like, especially since we're seeing it over and over again. So I can't think about Cho without thinking about that and like how much like this is my whole like angry Asian Ron moment. Like I would fight anyone <laughs> <laughs> for trying to say anything bad about Katie Lone because I love her. Like you know, in terms of what I've seen her talk about uh, on a like global stage as well as social media, like she's amazing. And like yeah, I would fight anyone. <laughs> for doing that. Kieran, were you going to say something? I just want to reread the books, reading Ron as Angry Asian Ron. <laughs> that's, that's what I was thinking. Awesome. I'm actually, I was actually thinking about that earlier. I'm like, because I, I mean, I've seen a lot of like fan art and discussion about people who are like, Hermione is black, uh, Harry is Indian. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I've never seen anyone like race bend the Weasley family, but I feel like it would work. Like it would, like you could... I feel like, and I'm, I guess I'm only speaking, you know, from sort of, you know, me as a black person. I'm like, say if you made like the Weasleys black or like, you know, all of the Weasley kids as like mixed. It's yeah. kind of like, it's like, oh, it's like, I think the extra layer of like sort of uh, Ron's anger and sort of uh, feelings of inadequacy, like it adds an extra layer. You're like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think I have some headcanon that that the Weasley family is actually Filipino. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want that. I want that to be. I actually like, also I want, want that. A version that sounds of that. great. Yeah. <laughs> Just and only in researching for this did I come across the world where Harry is South Asian mm-hmm. um, or mixed mm-hmm. South Asian and white. And that was mind blowing to me and dramatically changes the story for mm-hmm. me. Like, and actually decenters whiteness, well, obviously decenters whiteness more and really makes it start, like, makes me start thinking about how patriarchy shows up even more glaringly when Harry becomes South Asian, mm-hmm. um, especially given my experiences of patriarchy within South Asian culture um, and, like, men being taught that women should and can and should do everything for them, um, like Harry and Hermione's role suddenly, mm-hmm. like, relationship changes dramatically. That's all I'll say. It's just, that's like a whole nother conversation we could have. But Where did you come across the this um, version? Mm. I don't know anymore. I was doing a lot of Googling of like Parvati Patil, Harry Potter, and then somehow came up with something. Um, there's like a whole South Asian fan world that I didn't know existed. I mean, I should have known. I was in India when... The sixth book came out and we, all the cousins, engaged in great organizing to ensure that we were there to buy it the day it came out. And then we got one book and we rotated each cousin going into a room to read until some other cousin couldn't handle the long of time. And then someone would burst in, kick you out, grab the book and start where they were. Um, so obviously there's a lot of South Asian readership. But I don't know exactly where I found it. But that's what I was Googling. It was like... That's amazing. The Patils, Harry Potter, South Asian representation, Harry Potter, kind of like... I've seen I've seen some really good fan art on the internet. And I really just kind of love maybe like in the past, maybe like five or six years, a lot of people being like, we're just not going to, we're just not going to draw Harry Potter as black. That I mean, as white. That like doesn't, that's not interesting. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I am, I am so here for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I love... A lot of the fan artists that we have formed relationships with on Instagram, pretty much all of them draw Harry as being Indian. 
And whenever I see people in the comments being like, why? Kindly. We all just block people who are rude, but people who are like, but why? The answer is always just like, because why not? And I feel like that's a lot of the fandom, uh, like headcanons doing things like, you know, Hermione is black, Harry is Indian, whatever, us reading like Lupin is trans. And it's like, but why? It's like, there doesn't actually need to be textual evidence. It's just like, because why not? Yeah, but I did see some interesting whys too, or like ways that it could develop the story. Like one person was talking about if Harry is biracial and his the Potter side is is Indian, then it explains even further. Like it it adds on layers to how the Dursleys treat him. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, oh wow, yeah. I fucking love the Harry Potter phantom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think only in the last couple of weeks have I been like, oh, this it's opened my eyes to what could be within this world. Mm-hmm. So staying within the movies, so it got brought up briefly earlier, uh, the fact that Cho is given Marietta Edgecombe's plot line. And Eugenia, you said that you wanted to talk about the impact of that too. Yeah, well, it's funny because I did mention Model Minority Mm -hmm. um, a while back and it's especially timely now um, that we're seeing all of this um, Asian hate and uh, violence against Asians and how often we're seeing the perpetrators being black. I would say that, you know, at at least some non-zero portion of of the footage that we've all seen has been a black perpetrator. And it's been really, really interesting to think through this, especially because, you know, my husband is black. I have a biracial daughter. And it's like I've been trying to think through this without like, you know, think through my my pain and my trauma and seeing all these images and trying not to lay it on my own family, you know. And it's been really interesting because what has happened through time, especially in the US, is that Asians have been uplifted, especially Chinese, have been uplifted as this model minority in order to attack the black community as a, look, look, Asians can make it work. Why can't you? And it's been, there's so much involved in that. And so very often the Asians were the ones that were sort of fingered as the snitches, you know, like you're the one that's going to be disloyal and you're the one that's going to help, you know, white supremacy. And you're the one that's going to help this uh, white authority figure punish other people of color and so making Cho the snitch Mm -hmm. was just even if even explain explaining it away with Veritaserum it was just like no that's that is the worst possible thing you could ever do to this character Mm -hmm. ever and I I remember being so angry and that has really affected my my ability like and I actually really like that because that's Order of the Phoenix right and so I actually really like that movie but it's so hard for me I always have to fast forward through that scene because like seeing like so much wrapped up in that to see um Cho getting like pulled in by you know the white supremacist like gatekeepers right of um Draco and his cronies and um Filch you know like see and and um uh oh my god why am I blanking on her name Umbridge Thank you. And seeing her get pulled in like that by them, it was just too familiar. Mm -hmm. And it was too, it just, just got right at all of my pain around this issue. And I just remember being like, this has ruined the movie for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so consequential. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And I think like that's that piece where it's like so important, which is why I brought it up earlier, that Cho doesn't do that in the books. It like makes her character stronger and more complex and powerful. And the impact of pitting, yeah, like East Asian character against the liberation struggle is is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It wasn't just, oh, we didn't want to introduce a new character. No, mm-hmm. it was actually something that did harm, you know, and that was not okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Um, I do want to say, you probably already know this, but for our listeners, in case it wasn't made clear, the images that are circulating, it's like very intentional on the part of like white supremacy that they're mm-hmm. primarily images of yeah. black perpetrators. It's, I right. think this statistic is like 95% straight white men. So, right. Yeah. Just want to make sure yeah that out. it's absolutely disgusting yeah and you know typically when it's someone's caught other than the the um, perpetrator in atlanta like typically when they're caught they're they're the black right. perpetrator and that's it's such bullshit yes also a symptom of this yeah white white supremacy is really the enemy behind mm-hmm. all of this the maybe the the dark matter if you will of the issue <laughs> Invisible, yeah. maybe not quite invisible gravity forces at play. Yeah. Um, speaking of racism, <laughs> uh, Karen, do you want to talk about Nagini? <gasps> yes, I do want to oh, talk God. about Nagini, and I will talk about Nagini in two phases. In phase two, I'm assuming Eugenia, you're going to want to add in. Yeah. Okay. So phase one, though. Um, I will say my my family, my dad's family is Hindu and practicing. I did not grow up Hindu and practicing. My dad does not practice. But I, when I read Nagini, even younger, I was like, that sounds like, like a Sanskrit-based name. And then when I was thinking about this, I was like, I really want to – I think this is what it is. And I was right. So I just want to start off because maybe not everyone knows that Nagini is the female of the word Naga. And Naga and Nagini are deity figures in Hinduism. Not like in the past. Like this is, these are current day deity figures that are meaningful to people alive today who practice Hinduism. Um, and J.K. Rowling made the choice to name a snake who serves as a pet and a servant and a slave who can literally be possessed by a fascist wizard, the name of a female South Asian deity, which is a shitty choice, mm-hmm. right? And both both Voldemort and Harry can literally possess her. Furthermore, she describes Voldemort regularly as stroking this snake, which is a phallic symbol, and, and creates the snake as a, what's the word, a container for Voldemort's soul. Mm-hmm. It's just so disrespectful at, at the smallest. And then, so that was like, that's enough for me. That's like, come on, get it together. Like you could have just used, if you wanted to be appropriative, you could have used the Hindi word for snake. Or, or right. something, right? Like you could have just used an exotifying word um, in another language. That's done commonly, but to use a, the name of a deity that that like people people see as deities um, is 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 so 
disrespectful to someone's spiritual and cultural practice, um, religious practice. But then it gets even worse, and you all know it. It's coming. Um, it, I was reminded that in Fantastic Beasts, or the, or the next one, she makes it so that Nagini was once an East Asian woman who's literally turned into, dehumanized, turned into an animal. And let's be clear, Nagas and Naginis are not in East Asian culture, right? So the conflation of these cultures is stunning to me. Um, and then turns a woman into an animal that is a phallic symbol who is now a slave to a white man who can literally possess her and has filled her with the contents of his soul. Okay, and then she gets killed by another white guy with a sword, which is also a phallic symbol, and has lost her humanity and... She possesses a curse that only passes from mother to daughter, where she loses her humanity. I just can't, like, the levels of what the fuck were you thinking are so unbelievable to me. It is so infuriating to see a woman of color get conflated, like East Asian and, and South Asian cultures get conflated, get dehumanized, become a slave to a man, in this incredibly creepy and exotifying relationship of bondage and dominance that is just disgusting and unforgivable that it passed through the layers of editing it had to go through. It's yeah, the fact that people were like, no one was like, okay, but are you sure? Because this is real fucked up. Like, no one said, like, there, like, was there, like, not anyone at any level to be like, actually... My blood is boiling. Like, I'm getting hot in the face. I cannot believe that anyone along the path thought that that was okay. That's all I, that's, that's, I'm going to just pause there and let Eugenia chime in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when you, when you wrap in all the stereotypes around East Asian women that were subservient, were sexualized, um, that we have, we don't have any agency, like, all of that to put into this character first off is just completely unnecessary i didn't need nagini is already a mess i did not need more nagini like in this world i did not need it at all and to thereafter make a choice to do harm again is just sort of like what we've we've seen like my husband has a tendency like every single time i get i take issue with something in a movie he's like eh, hollywood's a mess and i'm like yeah it is it's true and you know there's no ke better keeper of stereotypes than hollywood right yeah um but it, to see all of this like it ruined like it ruined that entire franchise like i i didn't like it to begin with the only thing i liked about it was the beasts and then to thereafter put this in there then to also make her seemingly a love interest of who was he supposed to be he ended up being a dumbledore right the the i forget anything about the movie it felt like a fever dream to watch it but yeah, i've not like i've i've not read or seen any movies so i'm like i yeah, have no idea actually. yeah no they're awful like i 
pretty sure I saw the second movie, but I cannot remember anything of it, especially because I was either really angry or really confused through the whole thing. So, uh, but yeah, like nothing, nothing they did with that character was in any way acceptable. And it was completely unnecessary. They didn't have to have that character in there at all. They didn't have to make her an Asian woman. They, like none of it was necessary. And even like, I always wonder if um, Nagini was not named in Harry Potter in the in the books, would we have lost anything from it? And I don't think we would have, you know, if we just say, OK, well, you know, this is a wizard, um, an evil wizard. This is his familiar who is a snake. It wouldn't be like it would not impact the the plot in any way. Like, mm-hmm. so it was just completely unnecessary for her to even name the snake at all. Yeah. Let alone name it the like name of a deity. Like right. it's not it it shows the degree to which Hinduism isn't a viable, meaningful, sacred religion to people to, to right. just be like, I'm just gonna pull the name of like a race of deities. And um I wanna just pull in like um, it's hard to like speak on behalf of Hinduism right now when the Modi government is using like Hindu nationalism to perpetrate such violence. And mm-hmm. so I don't want to discount that, but I do want to say like you just don't fuck with people's religions and 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 use them like willy nilly to name snakes. You don't do that. Yeah, and I think this is a habit at this point of J.K. Rowling's. Um, real quick, Eugenia, you can hold your kiddo. Like, this is a feminist podcast. Your baby can be on the mic. (laughs) But, I mean, she did the same thing with, like, uh, Skinwalkers with the... Is that the right, Jesse? Yes. Oh, when when Dagger, I think, or in... No, it's the the people who can turn into animals. She was like, they're all wizards. And I think she is falling into the... I mean, A, she just doesn't do research and no one is checking her. But I think she fully believes that like if it's not modern day christianity it exists in like the far past and that it has nothing to do with like current people which is unforgivable yeah yeah wikipedia exists like there's no excuse it's like the the whitest of takes it is yes yeah so i used to be a belly dancer so so did my podcast partner toya and it's there, there's currently a lot of drama going on in that community, and there always is. But one of the core issues around it is so much of this traditional Middle Eastern dance is gatekept in the U.S. by white women. Mm. And so one of the things that I always dealt with, so I was um, mainly in this style that we call fusion. The second you bring in that word, it's almost license for um, white people to just like cafeteria style take from any culture in the entire world and just be like, but it's fusion when it's vastly, vastly appropriative. And um, so I remember watching a performance and getting so mad, I like threw something on the ground and left because it was like basically uh it was a troupe of white women fusion belly dancers that did a big asian fusion piece that involved 
literally any prop you could think of. So like one of the things that we see a lot in it from Chinese dance is fan veils. They use the Thai fingers. They were wearing like bindis, like they had like henna. And I was just like, what the fuck am I looking at? And I got so angry. I just left because I was like, this is some white women bullshit. And I definitely see that with JK and in the choices that she made, especially around Nagini, especially around any Asian culture represented in the books. Like she just white woman the hell out of it and it is so frustrating to see it see something that i'm like okay you know what this is a small like when it's a belly dancer and you know most of those shows are attended by everyone's friends and family so it's not like it's like on a national scale or anything but to see at that scale as well as this much more global scale that that uh jk has represented this in her books for posterity to sit there and say it's the same they're the same all over and it's so frustrating yeah maybe this is a good segue to kieran do you want to talk about your breakup with harry potter (laughs) yeah i mean i don't even know when there was just a point in my life where i was like okay first of all i talk about white supremacy all day for work and it's just exhausting i mean i don't anymore i quit my co-op and self-employed and narrowed my scope (laughs) Um, because it was it was affecting my personal life and my health honestly to have done that for over a decade and I at some point was like you know I went through all of public schooling in the U.S. and what that means is I read white men for the first almost 20 years of my life and I did that at the expense of being exposed to all of the other thought and thinkers in the whole damn world. And I have some catch up to do. And um, like that is that is harmful to all of us. But to those of us who are not white men, it's more harmful because of the ways, the things that we internalize about who we are, our value, our importance, our voice, um, whether our perspectives should be shared. Um, it makes you second guess when you bring things up, if it's even important to say, does anyone care? Maybe I should just be quiet. And I was like, this is uh, not what I want for myself. And so I overwhelmingly only read things by women and trans people of color. And the point is that I, I was like, I need to decenter whiteness. And I also need to be exposed to all of the other thoughts in the world Um, to be a better thinker, to have a better understanding of the world that I live in. Um, So it's not, it's actually important for me that it's not like screw white people or white thinkers. It's actually, there is a gaping hole in my life and in my brain where the whole rest of the world goes. So I do sometimes read things by white people. Like I'm reading Work Will Not Love You Back by Sarah Jaffe right now, which is like a Marxist feminist book about neoliberalism's shift on on work creating like a love ethic within work it's awesome right but it's so it's not that I don't but I I do it with great intention and I was just like there are so many other things in the world that I have not been exposed to there are people's voices that I want to hear that are healing for me and empowering for me and will make me a better organizer make me a better speaker and thinker and Harry Potter is not one of them it's not And so 
yeah, I can't place when that was or that it was, it wasn't specifically about Harry Potter. It was about everything, (laughs) you know, in the world, um, really looking at, I want to integrate the rest of the world into my worldview. And Harry Potter was part of that. And it's been really fabulous. I encourage that for everyone and, and not just for folks of color. Like it is a shame and a loss that we are not taught everyone in the world. So that was, that was that. And I don't feel like I've lost much. (laughs) I'm doing great. I've read some awesome books, you know, (laughs) and it makes me think like, wow, how would my identity have developed if I had read this kind of stuff as a child? Kind of like, I think sometimes I I managed to be raised and not know that uh, Freddie Mercury was South Asian. Um, for my whole childhood and yet been really into queen and when i learned my whole world like shifted it was like someone took my world and like moved it and and i was like what would my how would i have developed if this rock star this like flamboyant fabulous rock star that i loved i knew was also south asian i would be a different person today and um yeah, it's really good for me to be doing that and um, to be able to share that with others, um, more more perspectives on the world. That's so amazing. And I love hearing that. I've actually gone through something very similar, like since, since this baby, since the pandemic, um, you know, I mentioned probably briefly earlier that like I was, I started watching K-dramas while I was breastfeeding this one. And one of the things that I really started to do when left to my own devices was sitting there and saying, you know what, I'm tired of seeing white faces all the time. You know, when, when I want to sit down and comfort watch something, it had been in the past, like, you know, I was one of those people that you see constantly binge watching, like all those NBC shows, like, you know, in the background. So like Friends and Parks and Rec and all of those shows. And then realizing that all I was seeing coming through my screen was almost entirely white faces. And so I did like, I'm, I'm definitely someone who just has a TV on in the background when like, you know, doing anything in my house. And so now I ended up getting a subscription to this service that has all like East Asian TV. It's called Vicky. So there's tons of um, K-dramas, Chinese dramas, dramas coming out of. And for me, like this is a is sort of an aside, but for me, I've leaned toward a little bit more towards the K-dramas than the Chinese dramas, because for me, um, my family is from either Taiwan or Hong Kong. And so a lot of the recent Chinese works that I've seen, I can't be certain that there's not Chinese propaganda in it, mainland propaganda. And so for me, since this is a source of my pain, like I'm just sort of like, you know what? Uh, Because, you know, the last time I was in Hong Kong, we left literally weeks before the protests that are still going on right now started. So, but like, yeah, so I've leaned into just any chance I get to see Asian faces on my screen all the time and it's just been a really interesting recalibration of the way I look at things Mm -hmm. like one of the things that's very interesting because in addition to just like 
the scripted shows and stuff like that that I'm watching. I'm watching reality shows and I'm starting to hear the way a lot of, you know, the way a lot of Koreans talk to each other. And it is such an interesting recalibration to hear them say, oh, well, Westerners tend to look older than their age, rather than what I'm always hearing is Asians look too young for their age, you know? And it's it was such a fascinating recalibration of this concept. And then from a reading, like from reading perspective, I've done some of the same thing. And so I've been reading a lot of books, sort of memoirs by um, Asian American female writers. And it's been so gratifying to see my my very own thoughts like in a book that I took the time to like that was available for me to purchase or to get from the library like it's been so validating of like there's more people like me look here's evidence you know mm -hmm. because so many of us we grow up like especially you know if your parents immigrated here like we grow up very alone because none of our friends understand us and our parents don't either and so like it has been the most gratifying thing and i feel so much better about the choices about making that choice it wasn't even i didn't even give it a second thought i was like this is this is the thing that i need and this is what i'm doing mm -hmm. i wonder i don't know if you've experienced this eugenia but i, I when you said like oh seeing my thoughts or things that I think written in a book. For me, it's amazing because I'll read something like that and be like, oh, I didn't think that was like, quote, worth saying. Right. That, that like, that anyone wanted to hear that or, you know, and I'm like, just shy of 40 and I'm still untangling some of those talons of white supremacy for me. Right. And it's a loss for the world that I view myself that way. And I mean, it's, it's this, this has been a very powerful shift for me to be like, yeah, what I think is worth saying mm -hmm. you know yeah just plain old just plain that like, like yeah and it's it speaks to the power of the ways that that we can be so internalized all of us can so internalize white supremacy this is why i said this isn't this isn't for people of color this like everyone has so deeply internalized white supremacy and some of the only ways where you can see it is when you decenter whiteness mm-hmm um, that I think this conversation leads really beautifully into us asking you for recommendations. Um, <laughs> it can be fanfic or published works, but try to keep it in the fantasy and sci-fi genres that our listeners are here for, which is why they <laughs> listen to a Harry Potter podcast. So um, my absolute favorite work in the fantasy realm by in any Asian author is this comic book series, or I guess you'd call it graphic novel called Monstrous. It's written by Marjorie Liu and um, the illustrated by Sana Takeda, I think is her name. And it is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. I remember discovering it for the first time and being like, oh, holy crap, holy crap. And it's so beautiful and it, I'd gotten so tired um, and, you know, I think I discovered Monstrous maybe like, oh, it was a long time ago, that um, I'd gotten really tired of white men's perception of what East Asians were. And like, there's no better example of this than mem Memoirs of a Geisha, who's written by, which is written by a white guy, you know, which is ugh, everything about it just ugh, grosses me out. And so this was the first then I was seeing, you know, something that felt owned entirely 
by Asians from like how it looks to the stories in it like the, it, everything about it was just so beautiful and not only owned by Asians but Asian women so I, I could not recommend it enough like it's one of my favorite things ever so in you asking this question I was like going through books that I've read and I was like I don't read Asian sci-fi and fantasy or South, or South Asian sci-fi and fantasy um, and I also realized I read a lot of black sci-fi and fantasy. Hmm. So that's what I've got to offer because I was like, I could do a Google search and I could ask my friends and I could tell you what they recommend, but I wouldn't know if it's good or not because like, I wouldn't have read it. And that doesn't feel appropriate. Um, just be like, I heard. Um, so some of the things that I have read, loved enough to read so many times are basically every book Octavia Butler has ever mm-hmm. written. I've read many times. And the thing that stuns me about her writing is that I get more out of it every time, which is just incredible. N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, mm-hmm. I read twice within 12 months, which is saying a lot because it's a lot of pages. <laughs> and I loved it. And then I've read almost everything else she's written and there's one that i read during the pandemic where a pandemic breaks out which is i forget the name of that one but that was a really timely thing it was it was wild i was like i cannot believe i'm reading this right now this is just yeah, it sounds really stressful <laughs> it was great it was like my world was being mirrored in this other world <laughs> river solomon is another amazing writer um I just read their book about like a like like think a legacy ship like Battlestar Galactica where like humans are all on sh- a ship and they're looking for a new home, and it was stunning um, and very multiracial. Explores how um, white supremacy has translated into that world. Um, Nadia Okorafor is fabulous, yes. and if you like other like if you want another like. A kid goes to wizarding school. The Binti series is really great. Similarly, if you want, like, youth discover that they have magical, like, skills, um, but then use them to organize against white supremacy and um, and then, like, the skills that they have are, are their ancestral lineage and is directly tied to their culture. The Shadow Shaper series by Danielle Jose Older is really great. I personally think somewhere around the end of book two, beginning of book three, it gets a little like stick with it, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a little just like good, <laughs> good versus evil for a couple hundred pages. And then it pulls itself out really nicely okay. to something more to something more. And then it's not sci-fi, but in terms of South Asian authors, this is a classic, but Salman Rushdie's writes a lot of magical realism and Midnight's Children is, I think, my favorite of his. And if I'd say if you don't know about the language wars in India, it's worth it to read the Wikipedia article before you read the book or as you read the book, and you'll get a lot more out of the book. Awesome. It's yeah. so funny that you bring up magical realism because that is some of more of the the books that I've read by in the, the sort of sci-fi fantasy space by um, Asian authors has been magical realism. So like Ken Liu, I'd read The Paper Menagerie by him and it was just so lovely. It was so beautiful. Um, And he actually um, has started, I haven't read it yet, but he's coined this new term called silk punk, which is like, yeah. So it's like, (laughs) 
<laughs> I haven't read the book yet, but he's starting a, a fantasy um, series that is basically that sort of same steampunky, like London Industrial Revolution vibe, but from an Asian, like situated in China. And I'm so curious to see what this looks like, you know, um, because it's very, the idea, like, the characterizations of Chinese fantasy have always been there, right? Like everyone loves to play with it because it's so beautiful and all of that. Like, so I think Julie C. Dow's um, uh, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns series is a really great example of that. And it's a really, really great example of like, I love when someone writes a villain's like backstory. So it, it's really great. Like I would recommend hers her series but I'm just so interested to see what that world looks like layered on top of the sort of steampunk industrial revolution world so I haven't read it yet but I'm very excited too because I like his writing a lot so awesome and listeners all of all of these things will be in the show notes so you don't need to be like scribbling it down I know I almost have that feeling (laughs) can I share one more yeah absolutely Here, listening to you talk, I don't know what you said, Eugenie, that sparked it, but there's this book called The Mistress of Spices. Oh, I've heard of it. It is about a South Asian witch who lives in Oakland. I live in Oakland, traditionally known as Huichin, unceded Ohlone territory, who owns a spice shop, and spices are her magical instrument. (gasps) And people come in and she gives them the right spices to, like, address different situations in their life. Yes. It's a... And, like, it has... The most beautiful love poem to Haldi, which is turmeric, I've ever read. I, I Not that I've read multiple love poems to turmeric, <laughs> but this one is so good. And it has a love, like each chapter is another spice. And each chapter, I, I think almost all of them start with a, like basically what I would call a love poem to that spice. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I definitely have to read that. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, it's on my Goodreads list. I know the name. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get it now, 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 now. Yeah, that yeah. sounds incredible. Just to also throw out, Eugenia, uh, on my Goodreads to-do list, uh, to-read list, is um, a short story collection that came out several years ago, The Sea is Ours, Tales from Steampunk Ooh. Southeast Asia, <gasps> which I have been wanting to read ever since I read an article years ago where some it was like a Black author being like, we should have steampunk, but set not in London or, you know, colonial states, but like all over the world. His example was we need cotton gin punk which i'm still waiting for oh my god Um, (laughs) so i'm always excited to see like steampunk where it's not about white people (laughs) or like in like western europe so (gasps) okay that's on my list now too (laughs) (laughs) all right Uh, we've breached the two hour mark so i think we need to get to our last question um which is can you just let if you let your imaginations take you to the most beautiful version of within the parameters of the Harry Potter books as they exist, what would the Asian representation look like in the series? So I just want to say, first of all, I don't think it would be written by J.K. Rowling. (laughs) And that is okay. I want to invite her into the humility of that to like (laughs) really have her be like, there is potential here and I'm not the one to make it happen. And I invite others into this um, world. So... I mean, some obvious things. The characters would be developed. We would know their backgrounds, their histories. They would have personalities. They'd have their own personal motivations. 
um, the magical worlds they came from. I've talked about it a lot, but they would be we would get to see those worlds. Like if you think about the South Asian magical world, I mean, like, would there be a magical yoga practice? Like how, what could, what could that do? Like, would like herbology be based in Ayurvedic practices? Like, would you have pranayama practice for like, I, I don't know, like teleportation? Like how do the practices of, the cultures within South Asia transfer into a magical sphere. We would know about those hella old schools that have existed in South Asia for a really long time and about the histories of them and what magical practices they had developed. We would see adult Asian characters. Mm -hmm. We would see adult people of color characters besides Mm -hmm. Kingsley Shacklebolt. Yep. Um, Because (laughs) adults are who make children... And if there's children, then there's got to be adults in this world. And they would be developed and they would, we would get to hear some of their immigration stories. We would, they would have developed relationships with the young people. There would be interracial relationships among the main characters. So there would be people of color who are main characters. And they wouldn't, it, like, to me, ideally, it wouldn't have to be there's a POC Harry Potter and a white, and then Harry Potter, which is a white Harry Potter like we would actually get to see meaningful relationships built across race with a multiracial genre and not genre what's ensemble that's the name of it mm-hmm. ensemble cast um and we would get to see how how those relationships develop and unfold yeah we would engage with the issue of race in the wizarding world we would get to find out the histories of things like the british empire and british colonialism and the slave trade and and the roles that wizards played in those those historical moments, the way the wizarding world has been impacted by it, we would get to like dive into that historical space and really get to explore that. Yeah, I'm hungry for this kind of stuff. I think that could be just so beautiful and interesting. And like those those are the books I want to be reading. Um, and I don't want them to be segregated books. I want to see the interracial relationships across time and space in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love all of that. What you just said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's incredible. Yeah. I think from my perspective, um, you know, I think there's two, like I'm kind of looking at it in two pots. Like one is I definitely want to see what Asian magical power is um and one of the big gaps like that every single time i read harry potter i'm like this feels so missing so like east asian fantasy always delves into magical practices always and so one of the biggest pieces that i've always missed from harry potter is powers that come from elements oh yeah and so like and powers that come from prayer, you know, because so many of so much of that is all wrapped up together in um, East Asian magical practices, you know, and so like powers that come from fire, mainly fire, uh, powers that come from water, like, what does that mean? And of course, I'm getting a little too much into Avatar here. But like, you know, it'd be really nice to see something that took the actual world we live in into um, practice into these magical practices because that's utterly lacking in Harry Potter then and of course I want to see all and I say this all the time how do we justify that 
East Asians might be going like East Asians might be going to a Japanese school like that come from cultures that the J Japanese killed um, and did horrible things to. I really, really want to know that piece. Um, and then when we go back to Hogwarts, one of the biggest things that unites literally every single East Asian friend I've ever had, we are, re we are united by food, a hundred percent. Like there is just no question that the way that we relate to each other is through eating. And so I want, <laughs> I want for there, and I have this scene in my mind of like the food appearing in the great hall, like East Asian students sitting there looking at it, looking at each other and just being like, okay, we're going to go and raid the kitchens because uh, <laughs> this is not for us. <laughs> Where's the boba? Where are the noodles? Like what, what, where is anything that I want? And so I, I have in my mind this like East Asian like eating club that just goes and sits in the, um, the kitchens and just like finds whatever ways they can to get the food that they want. <laughs> And that's my big thing of like, you know, of I, I would love an East Asian writer to like actually come into this space and be like, th these are the things that are important to us, you know, mm -hmm. and like e even in that, like I I've always wondered about food in the Harry Potter universe, you know, I've always wondered, especially because in that Fantastic Beast movie, um, one of those characters whose names I can't remember now is like, I love cooking, you know, and just magics up like a strudel or something like that. Like, I've always been fa fascinated by the mundane in this mm -hmm. world. Like, who who are the people that we allow to cook for us from the from magic, you know, right. um, and that that's what I want to see this written from like that totally mundane life of what an east person east asian student's life would be at hogwarts focusing mainly on food absolutely like one of the like some of the scenes that are so exciting to me is when like mrs we you go into the weasley house in the movies and mrs weasley is like magicking together a meal and i'm like how is there not a whole book just about I this know. like and for same for like South Asia, I think for huge chunks of the world, like <laughs> food magic, yeah, is its own branch of magic. Just like the Mistress of Spices, like her magic is spice. Like there needs food magic is a form of magic yes. and needs to be developed. And I want I want everything to do with that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I could. I I feel like it would be so easy to imagine just like all of the not white Anglo-Saxon kids at Hogwarts being like, okay, but this food. Yeah. Can we talk about this? Like, what is up with just drumsticks? At least some hot sauce. Like, yes. what is happening? Like, what is going on? Some kids in, like, an empty classroom with their cauldron just like, I'm making some hot sauce. I don't even care. Like, if I get attention. Yeah. Yes. I basically want historical fiction, I guess I'm realizing. Yeah. I'm like, what's in... What did the resistance to British colonialism look like? How did what was how did partition impact the witching and wizarding worlds? What are the like inter er, inter like the relationships between Muslim and Hindu like wizarding community are like are, there's so much and, and and like if you think about the South Asian continent, I mean like there's like hundreds of languages and the religious yeah. practices. <laughs> I mean, there's oh my God. a whole 
so much to explore. And then the interrelationships between the communities, that is so interesting to me. Yeah. That's what I want to know more about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And the same goes for like just China, just China, like from the fact that I as a Chinese person speak two dialects fluently and understand two more like and that's not even a tip of an iceberg that's just like a snowflake you know like that's how many languages and how many different cultures exist in just one country Mm -hmm. so like none of our cultures are monoliths right so that needs to definitely be addressed in um in any sort of historical fiction or or otherwise focusing on these realms and like i would be fascinated to see because you know we do see communist government systems within a lot of these asian countries and i really want to know like how how does that interact with magical the magical world you know like it has to so cool yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i feel like having things be written by someone who just displays more curiosity would be great. I think I'm thinking about it because Jesse and I just read the newest Chuck Tingle Harry Potter parody book that just came out, which I don't know if you're familiar with Chuck Tingle and his body of work. He writes incredibly earnest erotica, (laughs) (laughs) gay erotica. It's I you cannot understand how wonderful it is without having read it. <laughs> and he, in response to J.K. Rowling's transphobia last summer, wrote a book called Trans Wizard Harriet Porber in the Bad Boy Parasaurial Office, in which, I mean, it's loose. Chuck Tingle has not read Harry Potter, so it's very loosely a Harry Potter parody about a trans wizard named Harriet Porber and like her relationship with a dinosaur because there's a lot of sentient there's like a sentient mailbox in the newest book but the the sequel is 150 pages jesse and i just both read it to do an episode on it and i think three or four different times in the course of it we were like chuck tingle answered a question that we have been like burning to know the answer to about how magic works like he answered the question of like how magic and food interact you can't eat magic food And we were like, we've been asking for this for four books. Like, we just want to know how do magic and food interact? And it's just because he's like a deeply curious person. And so he's not going to have something happen where someone uses magic around food without telling you why or like what. And it's just like curiosity is such a gift. Mm -hmm. Just we're all so hungry for this information. Just be curious and assume that your audience wants to know because we really, really do. Yes. Any closing thoughts or things that you had written down to talk about that we forgot to ask about? Just want to say this is way fun. Thanks. <laughs> it was, it's fun to have a research project. It's good. And it's fun to talk yes. about with you all. It's a joy to meet you, Eugenia. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. I've, I'm. It's fun to have conversations where I really feel like we can really focus on our own identities, you know? And it's yeah this it's always such a joy or of the two times now second time (laughs) (laughs) it's been such a joy to be on on this podcast so it's great we're gonna have you back we've got um four four 
books to go basically <laughs> because we just started book four. So <laughs> cool. Well, Kieran, do you want to be found by our listeners upon the internet? Yes, they can find me. My I'm I'm about to go on parental leave for a year, so like mm. you know. But if you want to find me, my website is fortifycommunityhealth.com, and my Insta is Kieran Nickham. And I think the show will show you how to spell my name, so you can It'll find be in me the show notes there. I'm excited to find you find you on Instagram now. <laughs> ah, cool. Yeah, I go through phases of being on it, and then phases of being like, this is not good for humanity, and then I'm not on it. So that's, that's those. Fair. Those are the different options. Oh, my Insta is <laughs> Kieran M. Nigam. My middle name is Marie, and it's in there as well. So you can find me there as well. Yeah, and I. I'm going to be coming back from parental leave and really focusing on like liberatory, like facilitation for liberation movements. So that's like what, that's my, you stay tuned, stay tuned in about a year. Awesome. That's awesome. Yes. Eugenia, where can folks find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram under Royal Geek G. And then you can find me on, uh, at Woke Doctor Who as well. I have a long neglected blog that I can't remember the name of, but it might come up if you search for me. (laughs) I might revive it. I keep trying to, and then I'm like, nope, other stuff to do. So, um, yeah, so you can finally mostly find me mostly there at Woke Doctor Who and at Royal G on both Twitter and Instagram. And everyone should also listen to your podcast. Yay! Even if you don't listen to Dr. Here, there's probably at least one episode about something that you are excited about. Yeah, definitely. Including Harry Potter. Yes, definitely. We've done quite a few. And like the, the thing that's coming up is definitely a much more general topic podcast for us because we're starting to feel bad about dragging people along to things that are not doctor who and so (laughs) so um yeah there's a lot there's a lot that we have uh, that we're cooking up right now so that's going to be coming soon and you know you'll be able to find it via woke doctor who awesome yeah thank you both so much for being here this was amazing yeah thank you you so much so great Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of The Gaily Prophet. Uh, The Gaily Prophet is a product of Hashtag Ruthless Productions and is produced, mixed, and edited by me. Don't forget to check out all of the rad pride stuff that we have going on. Uh, You can find it all on our social media, especially on Instagram, where we're at The Gaily Prophet. We're also on Twitter at The Gaily Prophet. We can be found at hashtag ruthless.com, where you can do things like listen to all of our episodes, write to us, buy our super cool merch, etc. And we're on Patreon at patreon.com slash thegailyprophet. The music in our theme song is by Kevin McLeod. Our show art is by Theo Julian Forrester. And until next time, have a happy pride, y'all. <laughs>